Thank you for listening to the Life Church of Kansas City, Missouri. Consider supporting by giving at tlckcmo.com, subscribing, and sharing this message with your friends. God bless you. Thank you, Brother Gleason. And it is a delight to be at the Life Church in Kansas City. Uh, I look across the audience, I see former students. Uh, I guess one of the challenges of teaching as many years as I've taught as I And this has been a a great church to send students to Gateway and to Urshan. So if I start calling names, I'm sure I'll forget, but I do recognize faces. And it is good to be with you. Uh, It's really good to be with the Gleasons. Brother Gleason is uh, somebody certainly worth looking up to and leads us in the United Pentecostal Church, not only by what he does here at the Life Church, but what he does for our broader movement, and I appreciate the sacrifice that he makes to make the kingdom of God go forward. I did teach Justin and Marissa, and I, I don't know that, I, I saw Caleb around the campus a little bit, I don't know that I've ever had him in a class, but uh, good to have all of that family uh, in classes and associated with the school. Without further ado, let me turn, if I uh, can, your attention to Acts chapter 2, verse number 14, and read uh, four verses. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing it's but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This morning I want to preach for a few moments on the subject of reclaiming our prophetic voice. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your wonderful blessings. Thank you for the opportunity to preach the word of God. I pray you would open our hearts, help us hear what you'd say to the church today, and that it would not just make an impact today, but it will continue to influence our life in the days to come. We ask it in the name that's above every name, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The last couple of days, we've spent some time uh, wandering through the pages of uh, modern Pentecostal history. And let me just stop for a moment and, and give a shout out to my wife. Uh, happy that she's able to travel with me. Uh, we're in the season of her life when the kids are all raised. The grandkids will let us go a little bit. So uh, I spent a long time traveling without her. I'm happy that she can travel with me. However, that means she has to hear me talk about the things I usually talk about. So um, if I need to pitch yet, I think maybe I can just get her up here and she probably knows these stories. This extended family of mine, uh, I, I do appreciate her uh, kindness and uh, willingness to hear this again and again and uh, act like she's excited to hear it one more time. So wives are an incredible gift. I, I think this is probably my first Time preaching the same message on Sunday morning. So um, 
This is going to take a little bit of getting used to. But uh, I think we can do it. I am by nature an optimist. Uh, thankfully, God made me that way. I don't think it was anything of my choosing, but uh, he just gave me that kind of disposition that looks for the sunny side of the street. I, I tell my staff all the time, you might as well get on the sunny side of the street. I mean, who wants to walk on the dark side of the street when you can get on the sunny side of the street? Why do you want to think about bad things when you can think about good things? I mean, it's a choice that you have to make, so come on over. I'm going to be on the sunny side of the street today, so come on over with me. That's, that's the speech they get every Monday when we meet together to kind of plan the week out. What's going to go right this week? And I know at times we have to talk about things not going right, but let's, let's spend our time talking about going right, what we've d- done well. <clears throat> and I'm going, to, I'm going to break from my routine a little bit this morning and, and uh, talk about something that we've done well, but areas that we haven't done as well as we could, and call the church back to our original ethos that what was birthed in us as, as oneness Pentecostals 120 years ago when this movement came into being and set a, a, a trajectory for you and me to live out what it fully means to be a Christian in the 21st century. This weekend we've talked about the restoration impulse uh, as the kind of the primary lens through which to look at the emergence of Pentecostalism. So early Pentecostals were first known not as Pentecostals, but members of the apostolic faith. And when Charles Parham started his Bible school in Topeka, Kansas, just a few miles west of here, uh, he, he called it an apostolic faith Bible school. And, and the message that he was preaching was the message of apostolic faith. And what he was trying to do was to restore the church to its apostolic roots. He was trying to reach back through years of history over years of history and say, let's not necessarily talk about what happened in the 15th century or the 10th century or the 3rd century, but let's go back to the prime source. Let's go back to the book of Acts. And uh, if they did it in the book of Acts, let's ask ourselves the question, if they did it then, why don't we do it now? So instead of looking at the book of Acts as the infant church, we look at as the most mature church. It's the place where God's will was, was done in, in the best way that we know how and say, how can we truly be apostolic? How can we do it like they did in the book of Acts? And so uh, they were attempting to restore the church. That was kind of the language that was used at Azusa Street. It was the apostolic faith mission or the Pacific Apostolic Faith Mission. William Seymour was influenced by Parham and he took that message of uh, let's return to the book of Acts church. The, the lead article in the inaugural issue of the Apostolic Faith Papers, which was the, the periodical that was published by the Azusa Street Mission in September of 1906, lead article said Pentecost has come to Los Angeles, a return to the book of Acts pattern for the church. And so as, as we've kind of looked at Pentecostal history, we've looked at this idea about how, how little by little the church is restored to its apostolic roots. Sometimes life gets cluttered on us and we lose our way. We, we make decisions and we uh, 
are not aware at the time that we make the decisions what the ramification of that decision is. And we have to stop every once in a while and say, how are we, how are we doing? When I, was a, when I was a kid in New Brunswick, uh, we lived right next to the, the woods. Um, and I don't know where we got this idea, but we thought we were lumbermen. Um, we go this before the internet and before the way kids are raised today. Our parents would just say, "Take an axe and go to the woods and cut down any tree you want to cut down." So we did. I had a couple brothers and some friends, and we were Paul Bunyans in the making. And uh, I guess because we burned wood, uh, we knew a little bit about how to cut wood. But one of the things that my dad taught me was that you make a you know, the, when you're putting cordwood together, you get the, the the pattern. Get cut one piece of wood down, and and you measure the rest of the wood in that pile by that first one. You don't cut one length of wood and then use it for the pattern for the neck. But you always go back to the prime piece of wood, and you measure off that prime piece of wood. And Pentecost is an attempt to measure what we do as a church against the prime church, the first church. What does the Book of Acts Church do? And the Book of Acts Church obviously was shaped by the day of Pentecost and by the coming of the Spirit. And this particular passage of Scripture that I read this morning talks about um, Peter explaining what had just happened on the day of Pentecost. The word Pentecost really is not a um, you know an elaborate word. It really just means fiftieth. Fifty days after Passover, there was another feast day in Israel, and they were really in town celebrating a feast day, the Feast of Pentecost. And when they were gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem, Jesus had been with them, and he had left them, gone back to heaven, and, and told them to tarry in Jerusalem to be endued with power from on high. And so the disciples went to an upper room in Jerusalem, and they were waiting for the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit fell on that group of men and women gathered in the upper room, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I don't know exactly what that was like on the day of Pentecost. Uh, I think it was exuberant. I, I don't think people were just talking in a language. When you hear somebody talk in a foreign language, you don't say, Are they drunk? So obviously there was more than just speaking in, the other, in another language. There, there had to be some emotional response to the coming of the Spirit in the life of the disciples. So much so that when, when they were exited the upper room and began to uh, file out into the streets below, they were uh, touched and moved upon by the Spirit. And the, the, the question rose from the crowd kind of spontaneously. What's happening to these people who are they what's going on so Peter stands up with the 11 and said this is that spoken of by the prophet Joel I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh and I want to talk this morning about the idea of the spirit being poured out on all flesh and the hunger in Pentecostals to have that same experience today to replicate what the book of Acts church looked like. And so that's kind of what was underneath uh, Parham and Seymour 
in the early days of Pentecost as they were trying to restore the church to its apostolic roots. And, and that meant in a, in a world so different from uh, the first century world, it meant that blacks and whites would worship together. That there were, in, in, a, in a world that was uh, 100 years ago very much impacted by Jim Crow laws, as, as segregation, particularly in the south of the United States, was the official law of the land where there were separate restaurants and separate water drinking fountains and separate school systems and separate areas of town in which people could live uh, that allegedly was separate but equal, but in reality there wasn't much equality there. There was really a two-tiered uh, Relationship between whites and blacks, and it was a difficult time uh, in which we're, in, in some ways, still paying the price for the decisions that were made so many years ago. And um, into that into that world so defined by racial uh, issues, Pentecostals came along and said the church shouldn't look like that. We shouldn't take our clue about how we should get along between races and genders by what the world says. But we should recognize that what happened in the book of Acts is that the spirit was poured out on all flesh. And what makes us one people is the spirit of God. If God pours the spirit out on a woman or a man or a black person or a white person or a Native American or a German or an Italian or a Mexican. We're all together of the same family because we're born of that spirit. And so we should live out the realities of what it means to be part of one family. That, that message was so countercultural to the day in which the early Pentecostals preached it. It didn't happen that way. There were still lynchings across the South. There were still uh, very difficult issues. In fact, Jim Crow laws were beginning stronger with each passing year. And the, the separate but equal mentality was becoming more deeply etched in the fiber of the American soul. Pentecostals said, no, we're going to worship together. We're going to love God together. We're going to be one people. And um, for a long time, that happened. When the uh, Assemblies of God was formed in 1914, they were formed, and, and I mentioned this, I think, last evening, they were out of this idea of a finished work of Calvary. The sanctification was not a second distinct work of grace, but it was, it, it happened uh, when you were saved, sanctification became a process, you were made holy, uh, throughout your life as you submitted to the will of God in your life. And, and that's the Assemblies of God, uh, the, the oneness movement broke out and began to make its way through the, the chapters of the Assemblies of God. And they had to face this question, are we going to embrace apostolic truth or are we going to cave to the accommodations pressure that's upon us? Can we turn our back on hundreds and thousands of years of church doctrine and church dogma or can we follow the book of Acts they chose they chose to hold on to the established dogma of the day and rejected Jesus name baptism rejected the 
teaching of the mighty of God in Christ. And when they did that, they also rejected this notion of interracial church attendance. At that point on, the Assemblies of God became very much a white organization. Oneness people wanted to push on. They wanted to embrace this new revelation, this, which really is an old revelation. And they, they wanted to, they had unearthed this idea that, I mean, it's, it's simple when you, when you see it. It's one of those things where like, how did I miss this all these years? Everybody that's baptized in the book of Acts, baptized in Jesus' name. I mean, that's not a mystery. That's not rocket science. You, you got to look hard to miss it. And so when they saw that and said, that's what we need to do. That's who we are. We want to be like the, the apostolic church. And I think perhaps that quest to be restorationist, to do it like the Book of Acts church did, they remained together in an interracial fe- fellowship. When the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World uh, embraced the oneness movement in the late 1916 and 1917, it, it was a... Uh, black and white organization uh, and, and for almost a decade they worshiped together leadership was some some leaders like G.T. Haywood famous African American preacher pastor from Indianapolis would have been African American and some white leadership women were very much involved in ministry a third of the, of the ministers on the role in 1919 the, it's the first record that we have of ministers in the Pentecostal Assemblies of the world, uh, a fully a third of those were female. Some pastors, some evangelists, some missionaries. <clears throat> but uh, that story doesn't continue. By 1924, there's a split in the oneness Pentecostal movement. And I'd, I'd like to dress this up and tell you with fancy words to make the hurt go away. But it was a racial split. And it was pragmatic. Uh, conferences always had to be held in the north. Could never have a conference in the south because south segregation was the official law of the land and couldn't eat in the same restaurants, stay in the same hotels, or worship in the same buildings. So they often always had to come north. And some of this, I mean, the best face I can put on it, some of the, some of the, People in the South said, you know, we, we don't have the money to travel to the North all the time. Maybe we should just have a Southern organization and, and maybe we have to separate because the laws of the land. And we, we drifted apart. We had black churches and white churches. We had black oneness churches and white oneness churches. And, and we lost that ethos that we had of restoring the church to its apostolic roots. The idea that the church is a one flesh church and that we worship together as he made us in his image. We didn't give that up easily. There was an attempt, a couple of attempts in the 1920s to bring the church back together. And in 1931, they actually were successful in merging the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World and the Apostolic Church of Jesus Christ into an organization called the Pentecostal Assemblies of Jesus Christ. 
in which they were officially black and white together again in, in, in such great detail that there were actually quotas. They, were, they, they looked at the constituency of the movement and said, we have, and I'm going to pull numbers out of, the, out of my head, but 40% of the members are African-American and 60% of them are white. And so 40% of our leaders are going to be African-American and 60% of our leaders are going to be white. Uh, again, nobody else was doing that in the 1930s. We were pulled apart. But unfortunately, that doesn't last. In 1937, decision was made. And I th- I'm sure there were some underlying circumstances that I'm not aware of. Uh, but in 1937, the decision was made to have conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, and I've been... <clears throat> I've been blessed, some people would say cursed, but I've been blessed to be able to have all these primary source materials. I, I, they bring down a box of old files with minutes from meetings in the 1930s, and I just disappear for a day or two and read my way through all those old, old minutes. And this 1937 conference almost didn't happen because they were absolutely convinced they were going to have another merger. They're going to bring another group in and get uh, become one. But somewhere in, in the process, they, they made this fateful decision to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, uh, in the African-American community, is known for a race riot that happened in the 19, early 1920s. It was a very prosperous black community in the city of Tulsa. In fact, often it was called the Black Wall Street as as Blacks had made tremendous economic progress. And a riot broke out, a riot of whites against blacks. And the whites destroyed that black Wall Street. Tore the buildings up, burned them down. Did their best to wreak wreak havoc on, on that emerging black middle class. And so for blacks, Tulsa was not a place that you wanted to go. Certainly not a place for a church to go if the church wanted to be an integrated church. And so you have another split. The blacks pull out of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Jesus Christ and go back to the Pentecostal Assemblies of the world. That need not be our story. It was our story. It is our story. But it need not be our story. During that, during that time when that turmoil was happening in the church, there's an African-American pastor in New York City, R.C. Lawson. He started a church organization called Church of Our Lord Jesus Christ of the Apostolic Faith. The Cool JC, the, the, the church organization I would belong to if I wasn't UPC because I like the name. I want to be part of the Cool JC. Uh, but he wrote a book in 1927 called Jesus Christ, Our Kinsman Redeemer, in which he argues that the blood of all nations ran through the person of Jesus Christ. And he traces throughout the Old Testament how some, some physical ancestors of, of Jesus Christ had both black and white blood, had mixed races, that had Jews and Gentiles that were in the lineage of Jesus Christ, and that the person of Jesus Christ had within him the blood of all nations. And he was our kinsman 
redeemer. He was like us. If you know from the, from the story of Ruth, this whole idea of a kinsman redeemer, someone who is kin, someone who's family, someone who redeems us because he is family. And Lawson said, Jesus Christ was our kinsman. He was not only our spiritual kinsman, but he was our physical kinsman. And if our father, the father of our faith, the person who set the Christian faith in motion, if he had the blood of all nations within him, then we as a people should embrace all nations. This 30, almost 40 years before the civil rights movement breaks out in the United States of America, the Pentecostals, the oneness Pentecostals, are leading the way to bring racial harmony to the United States and to the broader world. We, were, we had a prophetic voice. But I'm not sure that we understood the full breadth of the prophetic voice that we had. And pressures came to bear. The pressure of larger culture, broader culture. We've been, we've been good as oneness Pentecostals to hold fast to doctrinal restorationists. When we recognize that Acts 2.38 was the plan of salvation, nothing will move us off that mark. We're, we're insistent, almost dogmatic. Well, I'll take the almost away. Dogmatic about Acts 2.38 as the plan of salvation. Regardless of what everybody else says, the Bible says the way that we're saved is Acts 2.38. And so we insist on that. We've kept our holiness Standards against pressure from outside the world. We believe that there's an outward expression of the inward work that God's doing in our life. And in spite of pressure, we say, no, we're going to live in a way that glorifies God. But in the issue of race and the issue, and I'm going to talk just a moment about women in ministry, we've not been as firm. Our conviction hasn't been as deep as it needs to be. And so when the world put pressure on, we knuckled under the pressure of the world. And sad to say, I don't know that it's still true, but for many, many years, the most segregated place in America was Sunday morning. The most segregated time in the, in the week was Sunday morning. When across America, blacks and whites didn't worship together, didn't go to church together, but... And we didn't reflect the ethos of Acts 2. The Spirit is poured out on all flesh. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop that story right now and, and come back to it in just a moment. And I want to talk for the next little bit about <clears throat> another aspect of restorationism, which is this idea that God poured his Spirit out both on both men and women. That both men and women are made in the image of God. And when the spirit falls, the spirit falls on men as well as women. And when he gifts people, he gifts both men and women. When he gives them prophetic voices, it's not just male prophetic voices, but it's female prophetic voices. And our culture often silences women and takes away their voice. In fact, it wasn't <clears throat> until the, first, the second decade of the 20th century before a woman had a right to, vo to vote. So we, we built America on this idea that all men are created equal. 
but we forgot to think it through. All men and women are created equal. But when the Pentecostal movement broke out, it was both men and women who had a voice. So when Charles Parham has a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas, and he asks the students before he goes away on a trip, would you look at the book of Acts and see if there's any uniform sign of what it means to be baptized in the Spirit? And when he comes back and asks that question, they said, our study of the book of Acts shows us that when people received the Spirit in the book of Acts, they spoke in other tongues. So he, he processed that with them in class, and then that a few days after that, they had an annual watch night service on New Year's Eve, and they were praying that the Spirit would fall, and it was on a woman Agnes Osmond that the spirit fell in 1901 that birthed the Pentecostal movement I think when we look at scripture we have to look a little more closely at the the contours of scripture to see how God tells the story through both men and women when Jesus is resurrected in the garden he first appears to a woman you might read over that in an in, you know think that's Insignificant, but there's a, there's a deep clue about the nature of God when he shows up and, and makes himself known as risen from the dead to a woman. She, she becomes the witness that he was raised from the dead. So when, when Parham starts to organize a little bit and the Pentecostal movement spreads beyond Topeka and uh, into Houston and, and around the South, he, organized, he, he becomes the projector of the apostolic faith and he puts together kind of a, a rough organization in which he uh, appoints field directors. And so W. Faye Carruthers, a kind of real estate guy from Houston, becomes the overall field director and Howard Goss becomes the field director for the state of Texas. But he, he appoints a woman, a sister Cole, to be the field director of Kansas. So from the very beginning you have both men and women in leadership. The story of Pentecost would not be complete without the incredible story of Lucy Farrow, African American woman who has this incredible gift of praying people through the Holy Ghost. She prayed hundreds and thousands of people through the Holy Ghost and in many ways is the mother of Pentecost. When you get to Azusa Street and that famous Azusa Street revival and they put some kind of an organization together at Azusa Street. There are seven directors of Azusa Street. Three of those directors are females. The, uh, Jenny Evans Moore, Clara Lum, and Florence Crawford are all sit at the council that makes decisions about how the Azusa Street mission should go forward. Men are preaching, but so are women. Uh, men are worshiping, but so are women. Seymour is obviously influenced by Lucy Farrow. He is her assistant pastor in the church in Houston. And then when he is desperate for the Holy Ghost to fall in, in Los Angeles, he calls back. Well, I'm assuming he called back. Probably wrote. He wrote back, maybe even telegrammed back uh, to Houston and said, send Lucy Farrow out. I, I need somebody to pray these people through the Holy Ghost. And so she prays. Edward Lee to the Holy Ghost, through to the Holy Ghost in, in Los Angeles. And that 
incredible revival breaks forth in Azusa Street. She also prays Seymour through the Holy Ghost. It was Neely Terry, a female, who extended the call for Seymour to come to Los Angeles. And yet, with that incredible beginning of of both men and women being used by God, culture pushes back against women having a voice. And slowly but surely, we've watched over the last hundred years of women have lost their voice in the church in very significant ways. Even Seymour himself, when he, when he puts together in 1916 the doctrines and disciplines, he said a woman can pastor a church, but she can't be the overseer of the church. And R.C. Lawson, who did such incredible work, when he thought through this notion of Jesus Christ being our kinsman redeemer and the blood of all nations running through the person of Jesus Christ. Outlaws, women having any role of leadership at all in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, the apostolic faith. And more broadly, our culture uh, invented this, this idea that uh, I think probably is best exemplified in a television show that I've never seen but I've heard about called Ozzy and Harriet. This idea of there was a place for a woman and she should be in her place. And then the feminist movement grew up in the 60s and 70s. And in a reaction to the feminist movement, the church continued to silence women, took away their voice. And we're, we're turning the corner, however. We're making progress. The story is not as dark and dreary, perhaps, as I've laid it out this morning. Over the last 20 or 30 years, I'm seeing incredible strides happening in the Pentecostal church. I see a church like this church that has both blacks and whites who worship together, who, who love God together. I, I see men in the United Pentecostal Church particularly last little while, there has been an increased emphasis on women in ministry. Brother Bernard has done his best to raise the profile of, of both men and women in the United Pentecostal Church as they uh, both preach and teach the Word of God. But culture's different now than it was 100 years ago. Instead of the leading edge, Pentecostals have often become the lagging edge. In the world, women have voices. In the world, increasingly and thankfully, we're seeing, although we're in a very difficult period of our history right now, we're making, we're making progress on a race relationship. We're doing better. But in that, in that circumstance that we're in right now, we need to figure out how we can raise the voice of the church. How we can regain the prophetic voice of the church. To speak to our, our crowd, our audience, in ways that are different from what they're saying. Because really the world in which we're living right now is, is a postmodern world. And postmodernism has, has changed the way that we think. Uh, 
I've spent a good deal of my life in academic circles and, and obviously wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think it was important. I wouldn't spend the majority of my life as a teacher if I didn't think you made a change when you teach. So I'm, I'm, I'm part of the system that, uh, that gets so maligned at times called academia. But the academic world has, has embraced postmodernism in all of its form. If you know anything about postmodernism, postmodernism is incredibly good at deconstructing. And it really doesn't take much talent to deconstruct. When I was a kid, about 14 or 15 years old, my father, uh, someone gave my father a house that was falling down and said, my, my dad was wanting to build a garage, uh, where we'd say in Canada, a garage. Uh, I want to build a garage. And uh, he said, if, if you tear that house down, you can have the lumber out of that house to build the garage with. So my dad, I have a brother who's a couple years older than me. He, my dad said to me and my brother and a friend, if you tear that down, I'll pay you a little bit of money. So with wrecking bars and crowbars, two 14-year-olds and a 16-year-old flattened a house. Didn't take much skill. A good carpenter had built that house, but a bunch of know-nothing kids could flatten it because it doesn't take much to tear down. And postmodernism deconstructs tears away at the fabric of who we are. But what's risen in the, in the, in the wake of postmodernism, scholars call postmodern activism, and, and some, some troubling things are on the horizon, are actually already here. We live in a world that uh, talks about postcolonialism and postcolonial theory. We, talk, we live in a world that talks about queer theory, that suggests that there is no such thing as male and female, that, that, we, that we should live in a non-binary world, uh, that, that gender is a, a social construct, and that people aren't born female or male, and that biology and plumbing has nothing to do with gender. That's coming to a school near you. It probably already showed up in your Starbucks. Um, certainly, if you live on the coast, uh, you, you've already encountered that post-binary world. We live in a world that is engaged in what's called critical race theory and intersectionality that is, is pushing the boundaries of, of much of what we've understood for years. And my fear as a Pentecostal, my fear as a Christian who so desperately wants to image what God wants to do in the world is that we will react as a church against these radical ideas and we'll, we'll cease being prophetic, we'll be reactionary. We'll hunker down in our corners and we'll defend the status quo rather than saying, what does God want to do in the world today? My call to the church this morning is let's, let's re, re-grasp our prophetic voice. Let's look afresh and anew 
about what it means for the Spirit to be poured out on all flesh. And let's be intentional about building a multi-ethnic, multi-racial church in which both men and women have an opportunity to speak and be heard. Let's be the church. Let's be a one flesh church that sees past the color line, that sees past ethnicity, that sees past socioeconomic circumstances and sees us how we really are, people made in his image, people whom God had died for, whom he loved. As Pentecostals, we're uniquely gifted for this because we believe in the work of the Spirit. And as we've already said, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Next Sunday, when you celebrate Pentecost Sunday, Pastor Gleason makes the call for anybody to receive the Spirit, as I expect that he will. I don't know who will be here next Sunday, but I can promise you this. It won't make any difference if they're male or female. It won't make any difference whether they're black or white. It won't make any difference whether they're Hispanic or Portuguese or Filipino. And when the Spirit shows up, the Spirit will fall on all flesh. So if we ever forget who we are, the Spirit reminds us that I come and touch all people. We need to deeply build in our theology this idea that we're all created in His image. That everybody is special to God. And that there aren't any people who are outcasts as far as he's concerned. And then we need to tell stories. Stories that reinforce truth. I am absolutely convinced in the power of story. I, I come from a missionary district. I'm delighted to see the flags around the back of the church. And I'm assuming that this is a great missionary church. But New Brunswick... Canada is a, is a missionary district. So many of our global missionaries come from that province. Now, having grown up there, I used to think it was because people wanted out of those small towns. I kind of read my story into their story and said, I, I don't want to live in this little place of 2,000 people. Get me to a city. That's why they left. But there are lots of cities in Canada that they could have went to. But they don't go to the cities in Canada necessarily. They go around the world. And part of that's because there was a guy named Wynn Stairs who could tell a story. And he told us and told us and told us about what it meant to be a missionary. I'm many, many, many years removed from being at camp meeting in New Brunswick. But I can tell you that Thursday was missions day at camp meeting. And Brother Stairs is going to put a program on and everybody's going to want to be a missionary by the time he's done. And that got deeply in the fiber of that district till this day. An inordinate amount of missionaries in the United Pentecostal Church come from New Brunswick. That's the power of story. And then I think we have to look for opportunities where we can put flesh on what we've heard. For it's one thing to pray about, let's be a one flesh church. It's one thing to preach about being a one flesh church. But we have to ask ourselves the question, what am I going to do about it? How will I bring this to pass? In my sphere of influence, the people that I go to school with, the people that I work with, the people in my neighborhood, the people who are in my family and my extended family, how do I bring them together? How do, I, how do I look around the church and see, am I just associating with people that are just like me? Am I bringing new people into my, my sphere of influence? How are, what am I doing about it? 
How am I making a model for what heaven looks like in Kansas City? What am I doing about it? And that is done on an individual basis. Again, it'll be preached about, I'm sure, from this pulpit. It'll be modeled, I'm sure, by the leadership of this church. But ultimately, you and I are called to live it out. How do we do that? It's not always easy to live it out. Um, But it's worth it. Because that's how change is made. Probably 40 or 50 years ago, there was a uh, Peruvian Roman Catholic priest who invented something called liberation theology. His name is Gustav Gutierrez. And he argued for systemic change that, that structurally, and particularly in South America, there was such an incredible gap between the rich and the poor and the system was rigged against the poor people. And he argued that the, what the church should do is overthrow those systematic, those systemic structures in society and bring change. And I don't know how successful that has been, but let me tell you what Pentecostals did in South America. Pentecostals preached the power of the Holy Ghost. Pentecostals said, quit drinking alcohol on the way home from work and drink deeply of the Spirit. Pentecostals said, build a good marriage. Bring your paycheck home. Don't stop at the corner bar on the way home. And little by little, families, individual families, have changed the fabric of South America as the gospel has invaded not systemic changes, but individual changes because real changes are made on an individual level. So how are you going to do that? Life Church in Kansas City. And let me say it a little more personal. Individual members of Life Church of Kansas City. What are you going to do? Some, sometimes it's, it's simple. It's believing in people. Uh, two weeks from yesterday, I'm going to be part of a uh, homegoing celebration of my father-in-law. He died over a year ago, just before COVID took hold of our country and our world. In fact, we were on the way to the graveside to have a really small family funeral. When they called and said we couldn't even couldn't even go to the chapel, he he was a veteran. We couldn't go to the chapel at the at the veteran cemetery. We we could just have this outside ceremony with just a few of the children and their spouses there. So we, we decided that we're going to honor him in a couple of weeks, have a funeral or a celebration of life. And my father-in-law and I are, are so different. Um, he was a truck driver from southeast Missouri. Uh, he had seven kids. And uh, he worked hard. He just... When I think about Marion Gunn, I think about a guy who worked and worked and worked. He drove a truck and painted on the side. Uh, he had to feed those seven kids. And then he was musical. And if you know me, I can't carry a tune 
ever. And those guys, those, you know, the guns are incredibly musical, and my father-in-law was part of that. And he, he wasn't a deep thinker. He certainly wasn't a scholar. He never graduated from high school. Uh, but he believed in me and told me frequently, you can do it. Or if I was writing something or preaching somewhere, he'd tell me what an incredible job that I was doing. Because that's how you build people. You look into their heart and find out what they're doing right and you reinforce it. And you're intentional about that process. You reach down and say, I'm going to make a change. I want the life church to be a one flesh church. How am I going to bring that to pass? Who can I pick out of the crowd this morning that I'm going to reach out and pour my life into and make a change? It can be little or big. And, and you know, the biggest changes in the world don't have to be spectacular. They can come from the ground up. When it really gets deeply within you. This first service this morning I told a story in, about a co-worker of mine named Leanne Alexander. And I'll finish with this. Um, I found her writing a blog in Louisiana, a blog about duct tape. I thought if anybody could write an interesting blog about duct tape, she's probably an interesting person. Um, I needed, I was teaching at Gateway, administration at Gateway, and I was looking for an English professor. She had an English degree, master's in English, and so I reached out and uh, eventually moved her to St. Louis to teach at Gateway College. And uh, I moved a few years after that from my role at Gateway over to headquarters to lead the division of publications. And I needed an editor to, to work in the division. And so uh, I reached back to my colleague at Gateway. And, and the stories are never straight forward you never you never know how the hand of God is working in life I'm one of the I told you that when I started this morning that I am a uh, I live on the sunny side of the street dispositionally I'm just I'm just an optimistic person another attribute I think God gave me is I I think I do loyalty pretty well I'm I, I prize loyalty I think it's a great attribute and so when I was looking for a person to hire, I, I thought I wanted to hire Leanne, but the problem was she worked for Gateway. And I loved that school, and I didn't want to take her, but I wanted her on my team. And I was actually on my way to a funeral in uh, Moberly, Missouri, traveling Brother Dugas, who was a great funeral goer. We were, we were going to the funeral and Dave Norris was in the car and Mitchell Bland, who now is pastor of the church that I attend in St. Louis. In the process of that, Brother Norris was asking me, you know, who I was going to hire for this position. I said, well, I'd, I'd really hire, like to hire Leanne, but she works for Gateway, so I'm, I'm not going to. And uh, when I got back to my office a day or two later, I got a call from Brother Bland. He said, you know that person you were talking about? She really would like to come work for you. So I 
threw the loyalty aside, extended the invitation. And she's come to work at headquarters, first as an editor and then as an executive. And doing my best, and I'm telling the story to, sh- to put some flesh on this idea of individual. How can I give her voice? So when I speak or invite her somewhere, I want to make sure that, that maybe there's an opportunity for her to speak as well. When I'm writing something, we co-edited a book together. Basically so I could get her foot in the door in the publishing business the writing business. You, you sponsor people. You help them. You lift them up. You say, what can I do to bring that person along? So what can you do, Life Church? How can you bring racial healing to a city that probably needs it? To school system that is struggling there will be postmodern warriors out there wanting to wreak havoc. And your, your natural tendency will be to hunker down and push against that. But I'm calling you to rise above your natural tendency and be the church. And say, we have an opportunity and a responsibility and a gifting to build a one flesh church. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to pray with you for a moment this morning. I want, I want, before I do, I, I, I want you to just take a moment and, and think. What are, what's a circumstance in my life right now that I can be a change agent in? What, what's the relationship that's, that if I pursue the relationship, I can make a positive impact on that person? If you're, who can I give voice to? What, what woman can I lift that her voice is true and clear? How can I bring racial healing? What ethnic group can I reach out to? America probably has treated its, its Native Americans worse than any group of people in American history. How can I reach out to a Native American? How can I bring some sort of healing? How can I live up to my true calling, which is a one flesh church? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this church. I, I sense with everything that's within me that this church is on the precipice of revival in, in a way that it has not yet seen revival. I, I sense the heart of the pastor of this church and, and really in the feeling that I've had in the few short days that I've been here that the, the groundswell that's in the church about their destiny, who they are, who you've called them to be, the location that you've given them, the influence that you've placed in this church as a whole and individually. I pray, God, that you would encourage them to live up to the full intentionality of who you have called them to be. Speak to them, Lord God, in, in ways that only you can in the deepest of night or perhaps even at lunch somewhere 
drop a word in their heart and let them act out prophetically upon that which you've called us. You've called us to be healers. You've called us to be builders. You've called us to be people who shape the most positive things. Help us to bring heaven to earth in, in Kansas City. Help us, Lord God, to be the light and the salt in this world. In a world that is, is fraught with division, in a world that is destroyed by new ideas and radical thoughts, help us to bring some peace and some comfort and some direction. Help us to show the world that you love them and that you passionately will do anything that you can to make the world a better place. Help us to live out our calling as Christians, as Pentecostals. Call us back to our forefathers and foremothers who had this vision that was out of sight of the time, that was, it was spectacular in its intensity of, of a church that no matter what the ethnic background was, no matter what the linguistic background was, no matter if it, whether people were rich or poor, that you've called them to be a people together, to be a colony of heaven in this place called earth touch and challenge, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.